Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Sukkah, daf Lamed Chet, page 38. We have two Mishnayot on this daf, so we're going to divide and conquer. I'm going to start with the first Mishnah and a little bit of the Gemara, and then Yerdena, I'll hand it over to you. The first Mishnah begins with a traveler. So you have somebody who's traveling, and he doesn't have a lulav, you know, at his disposal to take the lulav, to do this mitzvah while he's traveling. So then when he comes ha- to his house, he should immediately take the lulav, right? He's coming home, he, presumably he's going to come home to eat, or is at the end of the day, right? He should still, I'm sorry, when he enters his house, he should take the lulav at his table, meaning he, I guess he wasn't able to do it in any other more formal kind of setting until this point. If he didn't take it during davening of the morning, during the tefillot of shacharit, he should take it in the afternoon at mincha time. And this is an important detail for anybody who's concerned about halacha lamasa, that you can take the lulav of the entirety of the day. Um, the mitzvah, that we do it in the morning, because we have a principle, that we get up and we rush to do the mitzvot that are at our hands. But that doesn't mean if you can't do it later. And in the to, you know, play off the mission. And what does it say? Amart. He should take the lulav at his table. What does that mean? It's a very strange expression. So the Gemara here says what that means is that if he sits down, he's supposed to start eating. Because that's what you do. You come home and you start to eat, and then you go, Oh my goodness, I didn't take the lulav. He should mafsik, he should interrupt his meal, go take the lulav, like at the table, right? Which was the fr- expression, while he's still at his table, and then go, you know, bench lulav, t- make the bracha, and then go back to the meal. Aval, but I'm sorry, it says, Vriminhu, Vriminhi. There's a kashia, there's a contradiction here. Imhit chilo, ein mafsikim. One second, we have a whole um, position, and this is kind of a sidebar, really, about what happens with with the meal, right? Usually, we have a principle that if you started your meal, you don't have to interrupt your meal to go do something that you've forgotten to do. You can finish your meal. In particular, the example here is tefillat mincha, right? You don't interrupt, or you don't have to interrupt. Um, but in this case, so, so the case is, you should not stop. Amar of Safra Lokasha, we're going to resolve this. It's not going to be a difficulty. There's one case where you have time left in the day. And the second case is where you don't have any time left in the day. Meaning, if you know that after you finish eating, you'll have plenty of time to do the mitzvah afterwards, so then you don't have to rush to interrupt. But if the day is, you know, is coming to an end and you still haven't been lulav, then yes, interrupt your meal and go bench lulav and fulfill the mitzvah in the day. So Rava says, he's going to try to analyze this a bit further. Amar Rava, Makushya, why is this difficult to be, why, is, why did you ever think this was a difficult to begin with? These cases are really completely different. Dilma had oraita had rabbanan. Because we could talk about the fact that one is Doraita and one is Drabana, meaning the mitzvah of Lulav is a Doraita, is a Torah requirement. And the requirement for Davening Mincha, as important as it is, is Drabana. Amarava, Ikashya, Hakashya, Likishi, Kanes, Levito, Notel, Al Shulchano. 
Alma de Mafsik. So Rava says, okay, so rather let's say what the, here's what the difficulty really must have been, meaning because the first issue we could resolve. So let's find another contradiction. What's the contradiction? In the first case, in the first case, the mission says he enters his house, meaning again, presumably to eat, he should take this little of at the table, meaning again, the, the pr- presumption is that he's going to interrupt his meal. And then later we say, well, if he didn't take the lulav in the morning, he should take it in the afternoon, right? And now we've got two different cases. One is you come home, you had no lulav the whole day with you traveling. You couldn't do it. Now you're going to even interrupt your meal. But the second case is if you didn't take the lulav in the morning, you should take it in the afternoon, which means like any time in the whole afternoon. It doesn't say, oh my goodness, rush and interrupt your meal. It's really like a division of, what what is the issue that why is it that you didn't take your little beforehand if you happen not to take it in the morning and you've got all afternoon to do so so you don't have to rush to interrupt which seems to you know align nicely with the previous comment but then so Rav Safra is going to come and resolve this contradiction as well Amar Rav Safra Lokasha had bayom this is exactly his his resolution meaning the idea that you have more time to play with means that you don't necessarily have to interrupt the thing that you're focused on. But if you don't have more time in the day, then yeah, you have to make t- avail yourself of the hours, of, you know, of the immediacy of the time, because otherwise you won't have a chance to do it at all. Um, the Lamar goes on in these kinds of like, um, I'll call it analysis, because really that is what it is, right? Trying to understand what are the different cases of what what would happen if you didn't interrupt your meal? How late would that day go? When can you you know fulfill the mitzvah and so on? And it got, again, it comes back to talk about this distinction between Dorite and Rabbanan, um, as the Gemara is wont to do. But the bottom line is that all of this is, I think, trying to assess, uh, you know, I said the other day that we're talking about like cleaning up the details of these, of this mitzvah. The idea is now like, what if you weren't able to do it in the ideal fashion? What if you were kind of stuck and here we're going to come up with all kinds of, you know, complicated cases to figure out the parameters of of when you can fulfill this or how must you fulfill this if you're if you're kind of stuck. So and I just want to say that just at the very where are we? I'm getting to just right before the next Mishnah, it says Daikanami, right? This the our Mishnah, right, the language here is very precise to begin with. Bidikatani Misha Baba Derech. The moment you start talking about somebody who is Baba Derech, somebody who is traveling, and he doesn't have a lulav, what that means is you know that you're talking about cholamoid, right? You're talking about the intermediate days of the holiday. Meaning who would let him leave to begin with that he wouldn't have a lulav and he would be traveling. So clearly we're talking about a case of cholamoid, which should remind us that this is already a different status of the mitzvah of Lulav anyway, this is the day that you could borrow it, right? It's just it's just not the same um, ex- it's not the same exigency, if that's the right word here, um, as ta- the mitzvah of taking the lulav on the first day of the holiday. So that also kind of speaks to the he, he has to get home, he's going to do it in the afternoon but he can, he can finagle it a little bit more easily than maybe the same urgency that we might have on the first day of the holiday. I like this whole discussion because it was very real life. Like it really acknowledges that like we're not always where we need to be or things happen. And it really presented like uh, a, a, just a real life situation as opposed to some of the boundary pushing uh, examples that we see. And, and also 
the close attention it pays to the language of the Mishnah itself. Is it talking about the first day or is it talking about the second day? Um, you know, it, it is always one of the good things that I think the Gemara does when it really analyzes the Mishnah. Like it doesn't pretend like the words are just there just to be there, but the language it chooses or the scenario it chooses gives us clues to what it's really talking about in order to, to flesh out more of the case itself. Yeah, I think exactly that's what's happening. And I think I like also that, you know, it's a it's kind of a, a very, there's a lot of detail in the Mishnah and the Gemara hits it all, you know, like really does the business of analyzing it. Yeah, I, absolutely. So I'm going to hop down to the uh, next Mishnah, um, which has uh, g- goes on to a totally different topic. So if somebody has, you know, a slave or, uh, you know, there's a slave, a woman or, a, a, you know, a small child who's reading hollows, reciting hollow, he can repeat after them what they say word for word. So the implication here is a little bit that the person may not know hollow and they're turning to this person who knows hollow to, to say hollow. Um, but it says, right? So he says afterwards what they say, right? But a curse should become on him. Because in other words, it says something not nice about, because the, obviously the category they're talking about here is a grown man who is supposed to, who's obligated in mitzvot, that they would need sort of these category of people who have a lesser obligation in mitzvot or viewed, quite frankly, as sort of less educated um, you know, society that was very hierarchical and that they would have to say halal for you on your behalf. So if a adult male was sort of saying halal on this other adult male's behalf, he doesn't need to repeat each word, right? He just has to say um, hallelujah afterwards. In places where they were accustomed to repeat certain verses, you uh, you repeat them, um, and if they you just say them plainly, you say them plainly. So in other words, it's interesting to see that there were different minhagim about how you said halal, and we see that even in the Gemara itself, there's discussion about like, this person repeated this, but this person repeated that, right? Um, if you make a bracha, you bracha, everything is according to the local custom. So we see that there was sort of a lot of ver- variety as to how halal itself was said. And so the Gemara goes on here to, you know, discuss a little bit more about what this, uh, you know, what what does this mean about having to be yotze by somebody else? Because really it has to do with, you know, that you, it means you weren't sort of educated the way that you should have been educated. Um, and so it's sort of like an embarrassment if you, if, if you're a grown adult male and you need your wife to be you, um, uh, or, or something like that. But then the Gemara goes on to a full uh, discussion about the customs of halal itself, right? Uh, when do you respond? What do you respond with? Um, you know, how do you break up some of those psukim and repeat them? Um, and we sort of see here on the page, the development of, uh, of, of halal itself. But I'm going to drop down to Ahmed Bet, where they get into a halachic discussion. So they asked Rabbi Chia Bar Abba the following question. What if you heard a passage, right, but you didn't say it yourself, right? 
Mahus. So what what what's the halacha? In other words, did you actually fulfill your obligation? So the question is, can you sort of just listen to halal, right? Like, could you be in a room and just hear people saying halal, but not say any of the words of halal itself? Amar lehu, so he says to them, teachers, the heads of the nations and the interpreters, right? So I think his point is to say, like, all of these people hold by this principle, that if somebody hears but doesn't um, recite it themselves, you actually fulfilled your obligation of how. Itmar Nami, right? It was also said, I'm a Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi, I'm a Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Pazi said in the name of Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, Mishum Bar Kapra, in the name of Bar Kapra. So now here we're going to get the source, right, of how we know this halachic principle, Shomea Kaona. And so they quote here a pasuk from Malachan Bet, from Kings 2, chapter 22, verse 16. Yoshiyahu. Right. So remember, there was this Torah scroll that, you know, Yoshiahu HaMelech finds. And so it says these are the words of the book, which which the king read. The Yoshiahu Karan. Did Yoshiahu actually read them? Velo Shafan Karan. Didn't Shafan actually read them? As it says, because it says also in a pasuk, a few pasuk came earlier in the same chapter, verse um, verse 10. Vayikra'ehu Shafan, right? Akolat Rimaila Livnei HaMelech. That Shafan read the actual scroll itself. The fact that it says that Yoshiahu did the reading shows us that it's Shomeyaka'ona. He heard it and therefore was like, he read it himself. He actually said it himself. All right, well, maybe Shafan read that, but maybe Yoshiahu went back and actually read it later. So Ravacha Bar Yaakov says, he shouldn't think that. And here he quotes from another verse from that same chapter, verse 19, right? Right, because your heart was tender and you humbled when you heard these things, right? So it's very clear that it was that he heard, right? And, um, and not that he, uh, and not that he actually read. So you know, this was a little diversion here on the page itself, but I think was this, the point here was to sort of establish this halachic principle based on a story um, of the kings. And again, I think these are always the types of examples like they know the principle, but it's always nice that they can hang their hat on something that they can find in Nach itself. And so we have this story with Yoshiahu in the Torah scroll. And that's what they want to hang their hat on here. But I think particularly with Hallel, which is always sort of a very participatory prayer, that's why I think this discussion comes up. Because here they're asking, what if a person really doesn't participate by saying the actual words, but just listens? And the Gemara ultimately concludes, you are Yotze there. Whew. I think that this is, a, it's an interesting um, blend here of Halacha and I don't know what to call it, like, it's a little bit more philo- philosophical, I guess, in terms of the backdrop of it, no? Yeah, I, I, I think so. It, it's, you know, and I'm curious if we'll see this come up in other Gemaras again or in a different context. It's interesting also, they don't bring like um, a parallel. It's just it's just in the Hallel discussion. Right, but I feel like, you know, we talk about the mitzvah of, of Lulav, 
let me go back. We talk about the mitzvah of sukkah, right? That's where we began. Then lo and behold, we find ourselves talking about lulav. And we talked about the taking of the lulav, right? And then here finally, right, we end up with halal, which I feel like, which, you know, I feel like is a good portion of the experience of what you do with a lulav. If you take a lulav to shul and you daven with a lulav and you do all your movements with halal, I feel like there's so much to that. It's like a very rich conversation. It's interesting to see that, you know, we, we have this Mishnah, which also raises the issue of sort of answering after somebody else. And then it goes to this discussion of Shomea Ka'ona. And even though the adult male who sort of answers after certain people is very much looked down upon, Shomea Ka'ona is looked at as like it's an acceptable thing. There's no judgment uh, that it's a sign of not being educated or something that's bad. So I think that's another point to sort of ponder here as well. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.